you know, we should be optimistic because I think it's realistic to be optimistic about achieving these goals, even though we're currently in a place that in the short term seems like the opposite. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My guest today, Raj Shah, served as administrator of USAID during the Obama administration and is now the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, a major philanthropy that is a key player in the global development space. His new book, Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens, draws lessons from his career to argue that big, bold visions for systemic change, what he calls big bets, are crucial drivers of progress, particularly in global health and development. In our conversation, Raj Shah explains this premise. We then have a long discussion about the current state of global development and the kinds of big bets he believes are required to accelerate progress towards the sustainable development goals and beyond. The book is a good read and a bit of a memoir as well. I'll post a link to it in the show notes of the episode. It's written for a general audience, but I think young professionals in international affairs might be particularly interested in learning Raj Shah's professional story. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. We've been publishing two episodes a week every week for the last 10 years. Global Dispatches is the longest running independent international affairs show. And part of the reason we have been able to do this for so long is the support that we've received over the years from the United Nations Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation of New York. A big thank you to those outstanding institutions for supporting our unique kind of journalism. We also can't do this without listener support. To those of you who help us keep our lights on by purchasing a recurring monthly subscription to the podcast or to the newsletter at globaldispatches.org, a profound thank you. Oh, and speaking of that, I have a new batch of Global Dispatches stickers that I can send to premium subscribers. Just use the contact button on globaldispatches.org to let me know your mailing address, and I will be glad to put one in the mail for you. Thank you. 
Now here is my conversation with Raj Shah, president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Just to kick off, can I have you define what you mean by a big bet? Well, a big bet is really a bold aspiration to solve some of the challenging global problems we face, as opposed to feeling like when you're tackling something like hunger or fighting a pandemic or working to expand access to education, that since they all sound good, doing a little bit or incremental work is good enough. And the truth is we can actually solve these problems if we commit ourselves to it and if we have enough ambition to do so. And that's what a big bet is. It's an effort to actually solve some of the challenging problems we face. So it's like setting your your heights high, aiming high. Exactly. And frankly, I wrote the book because I feel like I've been able to be a part of the big bets of many, many other people that have actually worked, whether it's Bill and Melinda Gates helping to establish the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization that helped vaccinate a billion children, or President Obama's big bet to fight Ebola in West Africa and keep it contained in that context, or you know, other people you haven't heard of, like Molly Melching, who has traveled throughout West Africa convincing tribal community after tribal community to protect the rights of young girls, get them into school, support their growth, prevent female genital cutting as a practice. And so people have done extraordinary things to make change happen at scale. And I wanted to kind of lift up those stories and learn from them. So your book is full of the stories that you just referenced. I wanted to maybe just by way of diving deeper into this topic, have you tell the story of the advent of Gavi, for which you were a present and a participant, and how that fits into the rubric of a, quote, big bet? Sure. Well, I think, you know, in its very core, first, there have been amazing efforts to improve childhood immunization for decades prior to the advent of Gavi, but they had both succeeded at different points in time and waned considerably by the time in around 2000, 1999, 2000, Bill and Melinda and so many other collaborators came together and made this happen. But basically, Bill and Melinda Gates read an article about rotavirus. And the article said that 600,000 kids would die that year of this disease. And if there was a vaccine, it would be introduced in the United States where kids were not dying. And around the world where kids were vulnerable, that would not be available. And it led to their philanthropic commitment to make sure that every child on the planet had access to every vaccine that could help them save their lives over the course of their childhood and adulthood. And that became the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. So I write in the book about a lesson I learned in that setting from Bill. And the lesson was ask a simple question because he would pull us all into a conference room and ask the very simple question, what does it cost to immunize a single child? And all of us, some had so much more expertise, and I certainly had a lot less at that point in my career, would say, gosh, this is really complex. It's very hard to do. You have to factor in all these human resource costs and vaccine supply costs, and sometimes the supply is not even available. 
And it's too complex to answer that question. But he kept asking and kept asking. And finally, I realized that answering that question was critical because it allowed you to do the math of what it would cost at scale to vaccinate every child. There were 104 million kids born every year at that time. And you could start to multiply out what it would take to actually solve the problem. And then think about how over time we used our resources, which seem big to people around the world, but frankly, we're just a small fraction of what it would take to immunize every kid on the planet to instigate a movement and catalyze a process to actually achieve that bigger goal. So it's the simple question that kind of sparks the broader coalescing around a big bet. Is there another simple question in your experience that you either write about or you've experienced yourself that has kind of led to transformative change? Absolutely. I mean, I think across many of the big bets I write about, the response to the Haiti earthquake, where in an instant, hundreds of thousands of people were threatened and so many institutions collapsed, physically collapsed. And in that context, the simple question was, you know, what can we do? We didn't even know we could land airplanes at Port-au-Prince Airfield. And just having a determination to actually mount a large-scale humanitarian effort was the response to the simple question of what can we do if resources are totally unconstrained. The Ebola crisis in 2014, when President Obama said, how do we contain Ebola and reduce it in West Africa so it doesn't spread? was a simple question, had a very complex set of answers, some of which were right and some of which were wrong. But to his credit, he kept asking that simple question so that we all kept our eye on the big mission, which was keep Ebola contained and reduced in the context of three West African nations to prevent a global pandemic. I'm wondering how you see the sustainable development goals factor in the rubric of the big bet, like they don't feature that prominently in your book. How do you understand them in kind of the context of the framework you introduce of how to inspire huge change? Well, you know, the SDGs are big bets. They are a statement of what is possible if we actually collaborate and commit ourselves to do what we know is feasible to accomplish. The goal of zero hunger and zero poverty as we know, is not technically zero. But when you look at the trend line from about 1997 through 2016 or so, 2017, in that 20-year period, the trend line on most of the SDGs was actually very positive in the sense that you had more girls in school, you had fewer under five child deaths, you had less maternal mortality, you had a pathway to very low levels of aggregate hunger and poverty. And then the circumstance with COVID and the post-COVID recovery, which has been this great divergence in human development outcomes between wealthy nations and less wealthy nations, has sort of undermined that trend line. And, and now we're actually going backwards and unwinding progress on the SDGs. But the SDGs were grounded in carefully thought through serious analytics that said, if this is the trend line over 20 years, what do we have to do to actually get these targets to be met by 2030. And those are achievable goals if we put our mind to it. I'm glad you brought up the impact of COVID on progress towards the SDGs because it kind of made me think of almost like the 
devil's advocate argument to your book, which was that Gavi and then the Global Fund and PEPFAR and to a certain extent the SDGs and then Feed the Future when you were in government, these were all seemingly like of an era. And it seemed, you know, back then these big bets were possible, whether that's because of macroeconomic trends, geopolitical trends, domestic politics here in the United States. But since COVID, as you noted, progress has been reversed. And that kind of global zeitgeist seemingly no longer exists. And I wonder if that's a reflection of the moment we're in and if the idea of making bold aspirational bets is something of a bygone era. Well, so I should start answering that by saying, why did we make those bets and commitments in the first place? And it was the very, very simple understanding that unless everybody experiences dignity and opportunity in their life in a very fundamental way, the rest of the world cannot be safe and secure and prosperous. And I think if that simple principle, in my mind, underpins the very purpose around having sustainable development goals. And that simple principle is as true today as it was in 2015, and certainly as it was in the decades prior. So I think the need for the SDGs is greater than ever today, because that principle is so alive and important in our national security thinking and in how we want to build a planet that is safe and secure and prosperous for everybody. If you look at what happened with COVID, it wasn't just the disease itself and even inequitable response to the disease from a health perspective. It was also the reality that wealthy nations put somewhere between 20 and 30% of GDP into their economies to create a floor economically and less wealthy nations, I think developing countries did about 2%, while middle-income emerging economies did about 6%. And so the resulting inflation and run-up in interest rates has had you know, really drastic consequences in the developing world, while in wealthier nations, actually, there's been a strong economic performance created by that very, very large-scale public investment. That's why we're experiencing this divergence today in terms of human development outcomes across those two big groups of countries. And the question you're asking is, is that reversible? Can you get back on a path that we were on effectively for decades where you had real convergence in human development outcomes driven by outsized growth in emerging economies catching up to wealthier ones and then all the initiatives you mentioned? And the truth is we can get back there. You know, you're right that it's difficult in this politics, but I write in the book about a series of lessons I learned also at a time of difficult politics of how you build coalitions, how you build partnerships, how you leverage technology. And the truth is big bets are grounded in fresh, innovative solutions. We've never had better solutions than we have right now. The world's undergoing a renewable energy technology revolution that could for the first time actually lift a billion people out of energy poverty. That simply wasn't even possible to imagine five or 10 years ago. So, you know, we should be optimistic because I think it's realistic to be optimistic about achieving these goals, even though we're currently in a place that in the short term seems like the opposite. 
how do we reconcile this idea that we have more solutions right now than we ever have had before, as you described, but yet the politics of the moment seem like implementing those solutions at scale are far off and difficult. Like, you know, these solutions require a degree of global solidarity. And for the reasons you described earlier, there is this pervasive sense in the global South from the you know, people I talk to, from the conferences I attend at the UN, that there's this real sort of angst uh, right now and then real anger actually towards the global North that they're unable to access those solutions at scale. And this seems to be fundamentally like a political problem to solve. So how do we get there? So I think at the end of the day, the best opportunity we have to transform global inequity, to fight climate change, to prevent the next pandemic is based on the solutions that are available right now. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. But our our biggest bet at the Rockefeller Foundation is the idea that we can extend the renewable energy revolution to emerging and developing economies in a way that actually provides power to people who are energy poor. And energy poverty is 750 million people who have less power consumed than it takes to light one light bulb and one home appliance over the course of a year. As long as you're trapped in energy poverty, you can't actually convert your labor and your efforts into real productivity and beyond that upward ladder of mobility, job creation, and growth. But today, we have new solutions, solar mini-grids anchored by lithium batteries, coupled with remote management through artificial intelligence and battery management, also through remote AI, that can bring the cost down in servicing customers from rural northern Bihar to eastern Congo to parts of Honduras in ways that don't require the grid, that don't require large-scale fossil fuel or coal-based generation, and in ways that we know and have data are hyper-effective at people lifting up themselves and their communities, starting that cycle of job creation and girls learning at night and the whole positive cycle of development and opportunity. That's a new opportunity available to the planet. And we mobilized a pool of about 11, 11 and a half billion dollars at the Glasgow COP. And since then are now reaching, you know, probably more than 10 or 12 million people with these solutions in unique public private partnerships and blended finance project financing that's, you know, setting a path for how to actually reach nearly a billion people. So it'll take time. We'll keep learning. But those kinds of examples give me hope that we can take advantage of the solution set we have at our disposal and recommit ourselves to the very basic idea that unless everybody has dignity and opportunity, we can't build a world that is safe and prosperous for the rest of us. I wonder if we can drill down in a bit more detail about this energy transition project that Rockefeller has supported and and is sort of at the center of, because it just seems to me like a very good example of some of the trends we're seeing in terms of how public-private partnerships are taking the place of what used to be exclusively in the public sector, particularly as the politics of global development right now are fractious, that you have these kind of discrete areas in which groups like yours are able to bring together like-minded organizations, individuals, governments. So can you just 
take us through like the story of how this energy transition project came to be and how it works in a little more detail? Well, the lesson in the book that I've gleaned from this project is called Learning How to Give Up Control. And the reason for that is the Rockefeller Foundation years ago started experimenting with solar battery systems that could build out these microgrids and provide power at a village level at a reasonable price. And frankly, when they started this, the components were expensive, the systems required people on the ground to manage them, the batteries were suboptimal. And as a result, they were providing power at a dollar twenty a kilowatt hour, which seemed like it would never achieve commercial viability. But then they started innovating with all kinds of different partners. Spark Meter out of Washington, D.C. created metering that allowed for interpersonal metering and mobile-based payment. The cost of the panels went down. Local manufacturing of different kinds of battery chemistries made battery technology a solution instead of a problem. And in the introduction of AI for management, took some of the labor cost out. And the next thing you know, they were down to 20, 22 cents a kilowatt hour, engaged in partnerships with commercial collaborators like OMC, Husk Power, and the big power company, Tata Power in India, and started on this path to build out tens of thousands of these grid systems in India and Africa and parts of Latin America. And as that started to evolve, we started to engage in a conversation with the Bezos Earth Fund and the IKEA Foundation that were both primarily interested in the carbon offset opportunity that these technologies represented. So we reshaped the collaboration. We called it the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet. Each partner put in $500 million of grant commitments. And on the basis of that, we were able to go to the development finance institutions and raise another $10 billion or so on the backs of that more risk-oriented capital that the foundations were putting in. And once we had that pool of capital, we were able to really accelerate different kinds of projects, ranging from helping the South African government implement their just energy transition plan, decommission a large-scale coal plant and replace it with both green energy and a green jobs program. We're doing that same thing in Vietnam and Indonesia today in partnership with the G7 countries and many, many other partners. And we continue to accelerate building out the microgrids and mini-grids. Now we're just announced 1,400 mini-grids to be built out in Zambia, which will reach about a quarter of the entire population and really allow for the electrification of post-harvest processing and agro-business development and growth. Same is happening in Ethiopia and Nigeria. So, you know, it's like anything else. And it's a little bit like the other big bets in the book is once you start defining and developing and delivering some successes, things kind of build on each other. And these modest individual actions grow into big movements and big bets. One of the kind of long-time knocks on the global development community has been that it's very top-down, that solutions are imposed from on high. And to reverse this over the last decade or so, the trend has been toward what's known as localization, the idea that solutions ought to be developed and implemented by local partners, not from like DC or Brussels. Does the global development community writ large have the capacity, in your view, to absorb potentially transformative ideas, absorb big bets that might be kind of generated locally and filter them up through the system as opposed to from the top down? Well, it it has to have that ability, otherwise it won't succeed in 2014. 
the response to the Ebola crisis was a big bet made by President Obama and, other, and our team to say, let's deploy American service workers into a hot zone in a pandemic in an effort to prevent a global catastrophe. But the only reason that succeeded was a local group called Global Communities worked with rural families to develop a solution to, in a culturally appropriate way, remove the bodies of the deceased from their homes and communities in a respectful manner, but in WHO-approved body bags and with burial teams that were in full protective equipment. And that local solution ended up reducing 70 plus percent of the transmission of Ebola. Had it not been for taking that local observed solution and taking it to scale, we would have had a much different outcome for that global pandemic. So that's just one example, but we have to be doing that everywhere we go. And in the energy program I just discussed, nearly all of the innovations are coming from the communities in which these programs are being rolled out. Because as you could imagine, you know that's where you have to be able to piece together these systems and provide power in a way that customers and consumers actually buy it and use it to improve their lives. Otherwise, you'll be out of business. And so these local entrepreneurs in India and Africa are really defining the future. And the only way we succeed is if we kind of listen to them and help them achieve their goals. So lastly, looking to the future, is there any area that you think is particularly ripe for a big bet to inspire transformative change and progress? Right now, we're in a moment not unlike the end of World War II, where you know we have 50, 60 countries teetering on the edge of a debt crisis. We have a climate crisis that's accelerating faster than almost anybody predicted, despite some progress in wealthy economies in terms of investing in policies that are intended over time to reduce carbon emissions where they're currently high. And we have a dearth of resources investing in energy and climate transitions in emerging economies that will account for 75% of carbon emissions in future years if we don't act now. So in the context of all those needs, this is a big moment. And just like we crafted an Atlantic Charter and created the United Nations and created the Bretton Woods Arc institutions after World War II, this is a moment we should be thinking at that scale. And I see a lot of potential big bets at that scale. Our energy effort is designed to reach a billion people, move them out of poverty, and do so in 80 countries that will account for most carbon emissions in the future by displacing coal, heavy fuel oil, and diesel generation. And I could go into depth on that. I think we know the pathway now for how to prevent the next pandemic, and it has to do with building global surveillance, sharing data in real time, and ensuring that public health systems, not just medical care systems, have the resources and the tools and the preparedness to be able to fight back early in the context of an infectious disease threat. We know how to build that out. It's not all that expensive, and we could do that fairly quickly if we had the right big bet in that context. You know, we have new artificial intelligence technologies that even today Rockefeller is partnering with OpenAI and others to help, you know, little NGOs like Digital Green turn their vast trove of information into tools that farmers can use in a super efficient way to improve their productivity around the planet in ways we haven't seen for decades. So 
yeah, I think they're big bets in all of the different areas defined by the sustainable development goals and more. And now is a time when we should be optimistic and ambitious in putting together the kinds of unlikely partnerships that can deliver these things. Well, Raj, thank you so much for your time. Congrats on the book. And I look forward to seeing where your work at Rockefeller takes us next. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Great to be with you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.